0: birth of a legend 458 is the total out of which Bradman has made 309 not out to world's record first ball in test cricket in England for Shane Warne and he's done it He started off with the most beautiful delivery To this Is Your Sporting Life, for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund.
1: Hello and welcome to another very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals. Sam Edmund here to celebrate the sporting life of a superstar swan. Steve Wright played 246 games and kicked 247 goals across a stellar career for the Bloods. It all started at the Lakeside Oval, finished in Sydney and included two best and fairest and a place in the South Melbourne team of the century along the way. Stevie, welcome to the program.
0: Yeah, thank you, Sam. Uh, looking forward to having a, a, a nice chat with you.
1: When did, tell me, when did Stephen Wright become Stevie Wright? Or as a long list of commentators referred to you as, Little Stevie Wright?
0: Well, it, it probably came more from the, the singer, Stevie Wright. So, it, uh, you know, I was I was probably short and... Just a little bloke, so I suppose it just stuck a little bit that, uh, you know, following Stevie Wright, the singer, they christened me Stevie Wright. Where
1: where do we find you, Steve, in these most unique of times?
0: Uh, Yes, I'm at home. Uh, I uh, now currently live at uh, Phillip Island, so a nice little spot down here and been down here for uh, about two and a half years. So, yeah, very enjoyable. Beautiful.
1: And what does life look like? I don't know if it feels like yesterday or a long time ago, but what does life look like for you since you hung up the boots back in 1992?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a long time ago, but uh, I've actually been involved in football every year since. Uh, I've coached every year since then, you know, a number of different clubs and uh, different areas. So I've, uh, I've kept my hand in and uh, it's something I enjoy doing. It.
1: Are you coaching at the moment?
0: I am coaching, yes. Uh, well, not not... Coaching you right would, now because of the, would be. everything that's going on, but yes, uh, we were actually due to start uh, this this week. So I'm coaching uh, Minion Dunbar United in the Alberton Football League.
1: And and what about the day job? What have you done for a crust uh, since you finished playing up there at the SCG? I
0: headed to Tasmania where I uh, was actually uh, coaching down there and just working in a supermarket, and then uh, uh, for the next probably. eight to ten years, I I actually had full-time coaching roles. Central Districts in the South Australian Football League, Uh, then uh, up to Canberra and coached the New South Wales ACT Rams, uh, clubs in Canberra, and then uh, headed to North Ballarat in the VFL.
1: Well, of your long coaching journey, Steve, one of the teams you coached was the development squad, the New South Wales ACT Rams. Now, the word footy factory gets thrown around a lot in the modern day, but you had a good footy factory going on there when you were coach.
0: We certainly did. Yeah, uh, you know, we were based in Canberra, but we also had squads in uh, Wagga Wagga, one in Sydney, one on the south coast of New South Wales. we we used to bring most of the players into C- Canberra to live. And in the one year, we, we had uh, Lenny Hayes, Nick Davis, Mark McVeigh, Ray Hall, and Craig Bolton all drafted from from the one team. Uh, I was actually lucky enough to be coaching Central Districts in South Australia when Port Adelaide came in, so uh, we had a number of players. Drafted there, uh, one including uh, Stewie Jew.
1: Wow. So what was Lenny Hayes like as a kid? He always hard as a cat's head, I'd imagine.
0: He certainly was, and he, he won the Morris medal uh, the year he was drafted. and just a, uh, Not just a fantastic player, but you know, just a good person. You know, and uh, Always said that uh, if you had a, a child and he, he ended up like Lenny Hayes, he'd be pretty happy.
1: What's been the toughest thing to adjust to post-playing? We hear about um, players who hang up the boots, and some go seamlessly into the next phase of their life, and others, understandably, it's an adjustment. How have you found it? What's been the toughest aspect to it?
0: Oh, I suppose you, you you missed the limelight a little bit and the, the, the playing football at the highest level, but you know, I I just went straight back into to normal life, and you know I've got a, a wife and and kids, and you know it was probably more about giving back some, some time to them. You know, you, you get pretty focused when you're a AFL footballer and pretty focused on yourself. So it's about giving back to them and you know just step back into normal life and you get on with it.
1: And You've obviously got on with it in a big way at the grassroots level. There's been a big debate over recent times, particularly about the health of local footy and state footy. Are, are you worried as someone who's actively and currently involved? Are you worried about the state of uh, grassroots footy?
0: oh certainly you know there, there's not a lot of money around uh certainly in our league uh and then other leagues there i think there's too much money around and you know players are getting i think false money really uh but you know grassroots, grassroots footy and and this situation we're in right now could kill off a, a number of clubs and it's just going to be tragic because uh you know we we need those clubs and we need the grassroots footy and it's not just you know i'm involved in country footy now and it's, it's not just a footy club. It's a netball club. It's a, the hub of the town, and you know we're, we're getting 80 to 100 people for dinners on a Thursday night because that's that's where people meet. So, you know, grassroots footy is is very important. We've got to make sure we look after it.
1: So, Stevie, 14 seasons at South Melbourne and Sydney. You played under six coaches in that time. So the influence of Ian Stewart, Ricky Quaid, John Northey, Tom Hafey, Cole Kinnear and Gary Buchananara. did some stay with you more than others? And how do you look back now as a as a coach at the grassroots level? How do you look back on their methods now?
0: I learned something from all, all my coaches. I just believe that you're a fool if you don't you know take the good out of everybody. Uh, but you, you also missed... Uh, Tony Franklin for one game. Uh Bob Hammond for, for six games. Right. In uh, in between there. So Ian Stewart the the way Ian Stewart coaches, you know, he was teaching us things back in nineteen seventy nine that didn't come out in other clubs the for years. He was just a years years ahead of himself. Uh but I probably base most of my coaching on Tom Haithy. Uh just the the manner that he he uh how he treated people, how he, he treated uh the people, the volunteers and the staff around the football club. So I, I base a lot of my coaching, I suppose, skills on, on the way Tom and Hafey went about it.
1: Well, I was going to say, you, you won your best and fairest under Northie in 85. He just coached the one season and Cole Kinnear as well. Do you naturally, I don't know, look back on them a bit more fondly?
0: Oh, certainly. Uh, well, you know, you, you might say that they, they got the, the best out of myself, but then you look at, you know, the, the people that we recruited under Tom Hafey, you, know, you know, Greg Williams, Craig Bolton, Bernard Tui, uh, Jared Healy, Glenn Coleman, so we, you know, Jim Edmund, we we were just so strong then that, uh, you know, to to win the best and fairest before and then after, I, I still consider that you know they're, they're very special, but we were just stronger in those other years.
1: And as you say, Tommy helped you recruit well, but what was he like with the X's and O's on the magnet board? What was Tommy Hafey like tactically?
0: Oh, no, he was, he was pretty smart. Well, you know, I was out on the ground, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, no, he was pretty smart. But, you know, he had a basic game plan. You know, uh, and it was more, you know, kick the ball long. You know, we were, we were very lucky. We had Warwick Capper at full forward, uh, playing on the SCG every second week. You know, he, he kicked 92 and 103 goals. So it was it was basically you know get the ball long and get it to Warwick Capo one out. Just on
1: that, Steve, have we made footy too confusing? Is it too complicated these days?
0: Uh, I think it is. We we take away the uh, I suppose the, the players' natural ability a little bit. Uh, take away their flair. You know, I still like to think that I can coach him in the the older style where you know, I want guys to enjoy their footy. You know, that uh, we we still have a bit of a laugh and. A, you know, I joke around at training and things, but you know, come game day, game day we're, we're serious, but we still want to enjoy our footy. So I'd probably, you know, go back to when I played and, you know, we, we still, we we don't play with a full zone and, and things. While we we talk about them, we, we certainly don't play you know, like the AFL.
1: And just on your playing days, how would you go in today's footy? If we could pick up a Stevie Wright in his prime and drop him into the middle of the 2020 season, how would you get on?
0: Well, if I go back to the, the start of my career when I when I went to to South Melbourne, you know I I was coming off playing junior football for Victoria, you know and uh, doing quite well at junior football league best and fairest, but all of a sudden you, you get to an AFL club and you realise that everybody else is the same. So I uh, very early I I said a couple of things I wanted to achieve. I wanted to be the uh, the player that all my teammates wanted to have beside them on the footy field. So when the teams were selected, I wanted my, you know, if I was playing the forward pocket, I wanted my full forward to say, well, I'm glad I've got him next to me because I know he's going to chase, he's going he's to work hard, he'll pick up my man or he'll, you know, tackle. But also on the other side, I wanted to be the, the player that the opposition didn't want to play against. So that m- meant that I had to be mean and nasty and I suppose a little bit spiteful at some stages. Well, then so be it. So, those are the, the two things that I, I try to achieve.
1: And for the younger members of our listening audience, Steve, is there a player that you see in today's game that you watch and you get a bit of deja vu? Might remind you a bit of yourself in your Halcyon days?
0: I suppose it's a combination of you know, different ones. You know, maybe Callum, Daniel. I'm one 170. Centimetres tall, so you know, pretty small. You know, also, you know, you like to think that you know, a bit of Luke Parker. While you, you haven't got the, the marking ability, it's the way he attacks a footy. You know, you know, attacks a player with a footy. So it's a, probably a combination of a lot of players.
1: We have a bit of Caleb Daniel. I think you said a bit of Luke Parker there as well. Maybe a bit of Toby Green's attitude thrown in for good mix.
0: Uh maybe without the head wobble. Maybe, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I like to think that. You know, I was hard and nasty. You know, I still like to think I was pretty fair and uh, went about the game and played the game and shook hands after it at the end and, you know, still had uh, friends away from the footy.
1: What sort of trainer were you, Steve? Obviously, the players and the teams today, the training's all consuming, a different level of professionalism, of course, but what sort of trainer were you?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I probably got in a little bit of trouble there. You know, I was just flat out. Everything was... Hundred uh, percent. There was no, you know, easy nights. Uh, you know, I, I had a brother who also played at South Melbourne, Michael, who played forty games. And at one stage, after I'd been at the, the footy club for maybe six months, he he got a tap on the shoulder from a couple of senior players and just was told, "Tell your little brother that, you know, at training we don't go too hard at each other." And I, I suppose I got my back up a little bit, and then probably went even a little bit harder. Uh, because I, I just believe you, you know you train how you play, so you know everything was a hundred percent.
1: So, Steve, who was the worst teammate when it came to training? Just between you and I, of course. Here, no one else listening. But who took the
0: shortcuts? Uh, I'm not going to. No, I won't form into that. You know, <laughs> probably, you know, a few guys as they got a little bit older didn't didn't feel that you know the contact at training because you know we used to have scratch matches and you know, a lot of one on one circle work and you know, uh, two-on-one and, you know, things like that. So, you know, they, they probably took uh, got with a, a couple of other, other older blokes and took it easy and waxed a little bit with each other.
1: Yep. And are you amazed when you watch the the current game at the moment, uh, Steve, at the standard or the skill and maybe even particularly the speed of the modern game?
0: Oh, certainly the skill and the speed. And, you know, you, you even look at the way they, you know, they dribble kick and, you know, kick around the corner and you you think that... Will... Why didn't we ever think of that? You know, why, why, why weren't we doing that? And then yeah, you, you, know, you look at Dacos who started to to do some of those things. Yeah, you, know, you Think well, you know, they're just so much more skillful and and uh, talented than probably what we were. And, and then you think well, they are training you know, full time. That's their full time job. Where uh, I never played football as a profession. It was was all always. Uh, uh, full-time job and then football at night. But, uh, yeah, it does amaze me, the, the skill and the speed of the, the game. Yours
1: was a long and remarkable journey and a remarkable time for the Swans, and we'll delve into that a little bit later on in the show. But I wanted to ask you about the 2005 Premiership for Sydney and obviously the breaking of what was a mammoth 72-year drought. Where, where were you and how did it impact you?
0: Uh, I actually went to the game... Uh, I was lucky enough to have a, have a ticket. Uh, saw some some old uh, people that I I knew from when I was playing, who, who happened to be trainers and uh, staff. And uh, at the end, I must admit, I, I shed a tear. And just because it was what we we always believed could happen by going to Sydney, and it was just a uh, a great reward for those people who who did put their lives on on hold and and moved from Melbourne to Sydney and. Uh, I, I actually went to the dinner that night and, yeah, it was a it was a great thrill.
1: It was such a powerful afternoon, if I can call it that, wasn't it? Paul Ruse's, uh famous Here It Is must still send a tingle down the spine.
0: Well, it does. And, you know, as I said, that's that's the reason that we, we went to, to Sydney in the first place because uh, we knew that we, there was no future in Melbourne. Uh, the only, you know, the, the way out was to go to Sydney. Uh, I would have loved... The success to come earlier, but it it, uh, didn't. But uh, I got no regrets.
1: Well, we've lifted the lid on the fascinating story that is the footy career of Stevie Wright, and it will continue next on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives.
1: Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Fantastic to have a company here on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to South Melbourne and Sydney Swans great Stevie Wright. Stevie, what did junior footy look like for you and how did it come to be that you ended up at South Melbourne?
0: Uh, well, I played all my junior football at uh, Oakley District Football Club, which uh, just happened to be just over the back fence from where I, living, I was living, and uh, that was my junior club. And I I started there. I, I think I was about five years old, just going to training, and uh, they only had under thirteens, so uh, I didn't start playing for a fair while after training. Uh, my father was, you know, a, a coach at the football club, so played all my junior football there, uh, and then. Nineteen seventy eight. I uh I played my first year of senior football at, at Oakland District Football Club. And, and then uh I yes.
1: I was just gonna say we we touched on the fact, sorry, Stevie, that you're hundred and seventy one centimetres, seventy three kilos. What were your dimensions at this point in time, just prior to and when you were drafted?
0: Uh well I was probably the, the same height, but yeah, I was probably in the sixty sixty kilos around you know, sixty something kilos. I was uh wasn't very big, but, uh, you know, I played, uh, as I said, 78 in seniors at Oakley Districts, and that, that was in the Federal League, and the Federal League was a pretty tough league. But uh, Oakley Districts had a reputation of being a pretty tough team, and I was told that my job was to win the football, and I'll take care of the other stuff. So uh, I was pretty well protected. Uh, yeah, so I was, uh, you know, back in those days it was uh, zoning. So I, I was zoned to, to South Melbourne. Uh, my brother Michael was already playing there. But I, I'd actually played a reserve grade game for South Melbourne in 1977. I was playing uh, under 16 at Oakley Districts and got invited down to play a reserve grade game. Uh, so I played a reserve grade game and then 1978 played seniors at uh, Oakley Districts. And then 1979 I, I actually wasn't invited down to the footy club. Uh they uh they said that you know, I was too short and you know, they, they didn't think I could protect myself. So I uh I trained at Oakley in the VFA, I trained at uh Port Melbourne in the VFA and I uh trained at uh Sandringham in the VFA. So I was actually gonna play uh, VFA football.
1: Are you saying South Melbourne said you were too small and couldn't protect yourself.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh recruiting people. What changed? Well the way it turned out they, they had a uh a Interleague, intra club practice match, and they were, they were looking for some pop up players. And my brother Michael said, "Well, you know, yeah, Steven will come down, and have a run around." And they and they said, uh, "Okay, well, you can come down and sit on the bench. We'll, we'll give him a bit of a run." And it's just amazing. It's uh, it's really just a sliding door moment that uh, I uh, entered the field, and uh, the Swans had recruited uh, Len Thompson from Collingwood. And when Thompson actually picked the football up, and the only person between him and the goals was myself, and I actually tackled him front on, took him to the ground, won a free kick, and after that, as I say, it's history. You know, the, the footy club sort of said, "Well, maybe he's not too short, and you know, maybe he won't get hurt." And you know, I actually made the list, so it, uh, it was a bit of a sliding door moment.
1: Gee, so looking back all these years, do you think that tackle of Lang Thompson—it might have been the difference between playing two hundred and forty-six VFL games, VFL games, and not.
0: I've got no doubt that you know, if he had a, you know, run over the top of me, and, and which he he tried to do, uh, if he had a run over the top of me and you know, went through and kicked the goal, it, it probably would have changed. Uh, whether I would have got a, another go down the track, I, I don't know.
1: At, at that time, who was the template? So coming through in the mid to late 70s as you were, who were the premier little men of the competition who swam against the tide, who were doing well that you might have had up there as your influencers or footy idols that showed it was possible?
0: Uh, well, you know, Paul Curry was at the Swans at that stage. Uh, he was there. Uh, Gary Wilson from Fitzroy, who was only very slight, you know, a fantastic player. Uh, we had you know Colin Hounsell uh, at the Swans, another another you know, smaller type player. Uh so it was it was really every club had that, that type of player uh who, who was you know that was a, the rover was was short, so there were, most clubs had them, so you know there was a number of guys.
1: So after South Melbourne changed their tune, you played eleven games in your debut season of nineteen seventy nine. Now the first came in round eight, round 8 against Collingwood. How did you actually find out you were going to be playing your first VFL game?
0: I think it was like most of the, uh, the players back then, they, they listened to league teams or uh, you know, they <laughs> listened to the radio on a Thursday night to, to find out. Uh, there was no phone call or you know, uh, no team meeting on the Thursday night. It was just on the radio or if you missed the radio, you read it in the paper the next day.
1: Jeez, our times have changed, eh?
0: certainly have yeah I, I still remember that game we we actually got thrashed by Collingwood uh, you know 79 Collingwood played in the, the grand final so they were up and about and my first opponent was Stan Magro and you know the ball was continually down Collingwood's dead and then, you know Stan Magro you know actually said to me oh I feel sorry for you you know your, your first game and you know getting thrashed and you know you had Billy picking around you know, Calling his own game and commentating, and I thought, how long has this been going on?
1: You must have thought, geez, what have I got into here?
0: I certainly did, and I ended up uh, a couple of years later playing with Billy Picken, and uh, a very funny man. And you know, he did. He used to commentate his his own game, and you know, Billy's ball and kick it to Billy. He's the best mark, and he's he's going out. So it was all new. <laughs>
1: But South, looking back at the team, I mean, you had some. Of, you ran out that day alongside some of the greats of the game. I mean, Barry Round, Graham Teasdale, the Brownlow medalist, uh, Johnny Rantell, as well.
0: Yes, yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of good good players. You know, Gary Price and Greg Lambert, and you know, players like that that you know you you watch on the TV. You know, before you go there, and all of a sudden you you're playing with them. It's it's an amazing thing, and, it, and it'd still be happening to to guys now who. Who all of a sudden find themselves at an AFL club, and all of a sudden they're playing with guys that they never thought they would.
1: Yeah, big be, be a great thrill, wouldn't it? Such as the romanticism of that, um, and that will never change. But what was the feeling around the club at that time, Steve? As a what an 18-year-old, did you have any grasp of, I guess, how dire the financial situation was at the club?
0: No, not at all. You know, as a an 18-year-old, all, all you, you you're pretty well focused on yourself, just you know, getting to training and, you know, even even that's a battle. You know, I'm working, I was working in uh, in Mulgrave and finishing at 4.30 and training starting at 5.00. My, my father would pick me up, I'd get changed in the car on the way, jump out at 5.00 to 5.00 and straight out in the ground. Or, you know, you're just focused on getting to training and making sure that you're doing all the right things and, you know, you don't think about the finances.
1: And what was the nine to five job as a teenager before uh playing on the weekend?
0: Uh, I was a uh, a shop fitter, so uh yeah started as a shop fitter and then uh, a couple of years in I, I started working for the football club uh, as a promotions officer going to schools and, and doing clinics and things which made made it a little bit easier to get to training uh, <laughs> but but still you know, you've you got to realize that you know you start training at at five o'clock you, you still have to do your wakes. You know, if you couldn't get there early, you had to do your weights after training. So all of a sudden, you know, you're working nine to five and then leaving the football club maybe nine, nine-thirty and straight home to bed and up again for work. So it was, it was pretty tough.
1: Yeah, I can imagine as you're trying to make a name for yourself as well and, and forge a career when it came to football. Um, can you set the scene for us, Steve? Um, paint the picture for us. The last game at Lakeside Oval, what was that like? What was the ground like and... And tell us about the atmosphere on that day.
0: Yeah, the atmosphere, and it was still a little bit up in the air whether we, you know, were going to Sydney or you know what was happening. You know, the Lakeside Oval was, was normally pretty damp. You know, ankle uh, ankle deep mud in the, the centre, like most grounds did, because of the turf wicket. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the I don't think the fans really knew what was happening. You know, they, they, they weren't sure whether they were going to have a team at South Melbourne next year and, you know, things like that. So it was it was probably done a little bit underhanded, underhanded that, you know, there wasn't going to be a team there. And, and the players didn't realise either, you know, what was going to, to happen.
1: Steve, there's some sort of chance the game could return to suburban grounds this year when uh, the season's resuscitated due to the uh, coronavirus. Would you like to see that?
0: I think it'd be fantastic. You know, you... Just got to make sure that the facilities are, you know, are good for supporters because I know some of the suburban grounds haven't haven't got the facilities, you know that people are now used to. So yeah, you hope that the, the facilities are good and the, the players have enough facilities, you know, underneath the grandstands for the, the, the players and the staff. But uh, you know the playing services are now fantastic, so there's no problems there. So it's, uh, yeah, I think it'd be great. And it'd be great for some of the older supporters to see their their clubs back at their home grounds.
1: You, back in the playing days, you had a taste of uh, representative footy as well. You played state of origin. How exciting was that for you? I guess given the lack of finals that South Melbourne and Sydney were able to play, how much of a thrill was that?
0: Unfortunately, never played state of origin. It was uh, state footy, yeah. It was was more just state football. Uh, And sometimes it was uh, picked out of six teams. Would play, say Tasmania, and the other six would go and maybe play ACT. So it was uh, yeah, it was a bit of a different setup. In one year, in 1990, I, I actually played for uh, Victoria versus Tasmania, and then a couple of weeks later, played for New South Wales versus Victoria. So it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a little bit strange.
1: How how do you explain that?
0: New South Wales considered they they didn't. I'm not sure enough talent or enough players, so they they actually topped them up with some of the players who were playing for the Swans, who were living in New South Wales. So I think they they counted us as New South Welshmen. So yeah, it was uh, it was a bit a little bit different.
1: You played international rules as well against Ireland. I think it was a 1990 series. You you went down two under the Irish. What was that experience like?
0: I, I found that the game was a little bit quick for me. When I was getting up to 30 years old, and you know the Irish boys are a little bit. Uh, quick and nimble for me. You know, I, I was uh, playing mainly in the back line and yeah, I just found it was, was a little bit quick and my skills with the ball weren't that flash. Uh, I got very late notice that I was going to be playing in the team. I think uh, Barry Mitchell pulled out of the team so I probably got uh, about three weeks' notice that I was going to be playing so all of a sudden I had to get a round ball and start trying to kick that but oh, it was great you know thrilled to, thrilled to play you know against the island and to represent you know, australia and you know and with some of the players who were playing was you know it was fantastic
1: you're listening to this is your sporting life we're talking to swan's legend stevie wright next up we'll find out what the club's relocation to sydney in 1982 looked like through steve's eyes and it's all thanks to tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
1: Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're talking to South Melbourne and Swan's great Stevie Wright. The club had been operating South Melbourne at a loss for about 5 years I think when the Swans board elected to play all home games at the SCG in 1982 to stop the bleeding as a player at the time for you it must have been a pretty unsettling period of uh time.
0: Well it certainly was. I you know, I was in the situation where I actually worked for the football club. So I, I knew the the situation by then that financially you know we we weren't that slash so, uh, yeah, I, I knew that we we weren't going well. And in uh, 1982, we, we used to fly up to Sydney, used to train in Melbourne, uh, and then fly to Sydney on the, the Sunday morning and play our game, and then back on the plane Sunday uh, evening and uh, head home. So, yeah, it was, was pretty tough, but uh, that was the situation we were put in, so that's what we, we dealt with.
1: Did frequent fly points exist back then?
0: No, they didn't, no. No, it well, we, we, would, would have been pretty good, wouldn't it? But no, they, they didn't.
1: When the news broke of the relocation in about the middle of 1981, South uh, told supporters and members that the players are on board with the plan. Were they?
0: Half were, half, half uh, were not. Uh, and at the end of 82, there was a, uh, a bit of a, a split in the, the playing group. Uh, because uh, the the keep South at South people came in, uh, they they actually won control of the football club, and uh, in the end, uh, the the group that were going to wanted to go to Sydney. We, we had Ricky Quaid as our coach. The uh, the other other group had John Mantell as our coach, and we we actually had two training groups, so uh, it was a difficult time
1: two training groups so uh, the opinion was that divided you were training apart
0: yes that's right yeah uh so the the, the guys who were pro going to sydney and the, the guys who who wanted to stay in melbourne uh to, to john rantell's uh credit in the end he he knew the situation that it was better that we we went to sydney he actually uh resigned as coach and, and ricky Quade uh had the job
1: you mentioned the Keep South at South movement and, yeah, they did take control of the club's board. They didn't quite have the power to halt the move north, though. And when they promised to bring the club back, it was reported at the time that some players went on strike or were going to go on strike. What What are your memories of that?
0: Uh, yes, I was one of those those players who... Because I was in the, the other group and, as I said, I, I, I knew more about it. You know, I was even... Uh, because I was working for the football club, I was actually going to people's homes and getting proxy votes to, for uh because the, they didn't want to go to the, the annual general meeting because it was going to be so heated. So uh, I was heading to to people's homes and getting proxy votes to to uh, to take to the meeting. Uh, so you know, I uh, there was a photo of myself and uh, in tears after one of those meetings, and you know people. There was a report in the paper that you know, I was in tears because, you know, the the club wasn't going to Sydney. I, I was actually, uh, because the, the club was staying in Melbourne, I was actually in tears because the club wasn't going to Sydney because uh, that night I, I actually lost my job, uh, lost my, my company car, lost my my football club because I, I, I knew there wasn't going to be a football club and, you know, everything just, uh, I suppose, came at once. So uh, all of a sudden that... It was, it was a really tough time, so we were, I suppose, not on strike, but more just out of work.
1: You were owed money from the previous season, weren't you? There was a clutch of players who were obviously just keen to get paid again.
0: Oh, when you say owed money, it certainly wasn't a lot of money, but uh, I don't think too many players were getting paid at that stage. Uh, it, was a, it was a difficult time because the club had no money.
1: When you got to the Harbour City, what was the footy scene like up there?
0: Well, the situation early on, uh, you know, I, I was due to get married in February 1983. So uh, because we were moving to Sydney, we, uh, we had to actually bring that forward. So that was uh, brought forward to December 82, on the 3rd of December, and uh, on the 5th of December, moved to Sydney. But uh, two weeks before that, the club said to myself and my then fiancé that OK, we're moving to Sydney, we'll, we'll fly you up to Sydney so you can look for somewhere to live. So we, we flew to Sydney. Uh, there was no one at the airport to, to meet us. We got a cab to the... The Swans had an office there where a guy named Graham, Graham Huggins, who was ex-St. Kilda president, was helping the AFL, or VFL. So uh, we got a cab to the office. He handed us his car keys, street directory, and the the Sydney paper weekend paper and said there you go find somewhere to live. So uh, off off we went to to find a house to to move into. Uh, My mate Dave Reese jones who who was playing said I can't really be bothered coming up to Sydney to have a look so can you find me a place too? (laughs) Um, So off we went and found a couple of places to live and uh, went back to the office and handed the keys and got a cab back to the airport and went back to Melbourne. Uh, so nothing like they get treated like now but uh, that was the situation we're in By
1: 85 Steve a flamboyant doctor by the name of Geoffrey Edelston bought the club and he had helicopters, he had a fleet of Rolls Royces and Lamborghinis with license plates like macho spunky, sexy what are your memories of the former club owner?
0: Oh it was just a crazy time, you know we we, uh, went out to his house at uh, Dural and and I drove in the front gate and there was his pink helicopter. There was a Channel Seven, Channel Nine, and Channel Ten helicopters, all all in his front yard, and just this lavish, big bash that he put on for the for the players. And it was just it was amazing time. It was, uh, you know, they they then got the Swanets up and going. And uh, I'm not sure you know, he loved his his football with Carlton, but I'm not sure if he knew anything about actually running a football club. But it was. Uh, it was an amazing times and I, I remember that uh, I won the, the best in fairest in 85 and uh, my then accountant said, listen, you know they're not signing you, you know, giving you what you want, so just stay in Melbourne over Christmas and you know, this is when the doctor came in, so I got a phone call from the doctor and he said, okay, we'll go out for dinner. Uh, I walked in and he said, okay, what do you want? And I said, oh, I think I'm worth this much he said yes no problems ok there you go dinner's on me and walked out and I said to my wife I, I don't think we asked for enough but that was the situation I was happy with what I was getting so yeah he was uh, I'm not sure whether he had all the money to pay the players but uh, there was a lot of players made some good money I think
1: Dr. Edelston lasted less than 12 months, but he made a name for himself in that time because we'd spoke about him earlier, but he got the former Geelong coach Tommy Hafey across and then Hafey was able to use his knowledge of Geelong's contracts to get the likes of David Bolton, Bernard Tui, and Greg Williams as well. So he left something of a legacy.
0: He certainly did. And the number of players that uh, you know we gained, and I mentioned some of them before, You know, Jim Edmond, who was a, a captain, an AFL captain, Merv Nagel, who was a, you know, runner-up in the Brownlow Medal, uh, you know, Glenn Coleman. Uh, I've even got a poster here, and it's got uh, Morris Rioli in it, who, who was coming up, but then all of a sudden the salary cap, you know, we couldn't fit him in. It's just, it was an amazing time, and you know, I, I knew that these players were going to be paid more than what I was was being paid, but that didn't weigh me because I, I knew that we knew we needed those players, uh, and if they were getting Twice as much as me, so be it. You know, I didn't really care because I just wanted to play in a successful team. And then there was
1: another player, wasn't there? A youngster by the name of Warwick Capper. He played under-19s for Souths in 1881, but he landed at the SCG in 83 with that shock uh, of blonde hair, the mullet, the pink boots, and a pink Lamborghini to match. What are your memories of uh, the Wiz?
0: Uh, fantastic. You know, he, he came from the same jun- junior club as myself, so I lived in the same area. And well, you know, he played at the same junior club, open districts. He actually played underage as a ruckman because of his his fantastic leap. Uh, but then, you know, somebody saw something in him where you know putting him at full forward. While he wasn't a, a great long kick, he was a quite an accurate kick. And as I mentioned, the, the SCG just suited him because he he had such a great leap and a great marking ability. He, if you get him one out, he was going to mark it or. As a little fellow, he's gonna you know bring it to the ground and, and give us an opportunity.
1: The Swans played finals in '86 and '87, Stephen. Obviously, we're having winning seasons. What was it like at the SCG with uh, Kappa running a muck at full forward and uh, the stars all up and going? What was the what was the scene like at the SCG during those times?
0: Oh, it was electrifying. You know, we we had packed houses, and uh, you know, it just goes to show that you know if you're winning, that you know, Sydney people are going to come and watch you. And, you know, I was working in junior development, so, you know, it was, it was the talk of the town. Uh, people wanted to come and watch, and people wanted to, you know, get tickets, and, uh, you know, 40,000 people. And I still believe we had the same system now. Uh, back then, we're home finals, because we we're, weren't really un- unbeatable on the SCG. But, unfortunately, we got caught out coming to the MCG and Waverley and on the good grounds.
1: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're we'll back after this to wrap up with Stevie Wright.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
1: Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It's been fantastic to have your company on the latest episode of This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers funeral celebrating lives. Today, we've been celebrating the sporting life of South Melbourne and Sydney Swans great Stevie Wright. Stevie, it was such an interesting time, South Melbourne, moving to Sydney. Tell us, of all the people you played with at the Swans, who made the biggest impact on the game up there in Sydney?
0: Uh, I've got no doubt that you know Warwick Kappa... Was, was the, the biggest influence. Uh, he put bums on seats. You know, people wanted to know him. Uh, you know, every time there was a, an article in the, the newspaper, Warwick was was front and centre. So, yeah, Warwick
1: What was your relationship like with Warwick? Because he polarised people. He was never scared uh, in his playing days, and even more so today, to say what he thinks. And he wears his heart on his sleeve. What was your relationship like with uh, the man that became known as the Wiz?
0: I've had a pretty strong relationship. Uh, you know, I played a lot of football right beside him uh, as a forward pocket and a full forward. So, you know, I used to chat to him a, a fair bit and uh, not say keep him calm, but just, you know, keep him focused and make sure he's, he was doing the the right thing. And then uh, he went to Brisbane and then we well, were fortunate enough to get him back. I think it was in 1989. And uh, he rang me and told me that the big whiz was coming back to Sydney. And... Uh, I said, "Well, if you need somewhere to stay, you can come here for a couple of days." And he came and stayed for about eight weeks. So uh, he was—he was a different, different, different character. I, I had uh, two young kids, uh, probably three and four years old, but he took the, the most looking after. I think. I,
1: I was just going to say, uh, you strike me as the conservative type. What sort of a housemate was Warwick Capper? I
0: uh, was—was—it was, was a fun house to to be in. I—I uh, I just at the end of eight weeks, I just got sick of cleaning up after him. You know, he'd have, you know, 10, ten bowls of cereal and, and leave the bowls around the house. And I'd come home from work and have to pick them up. And, uh, in the end, my, my wife, Carrie and I said, oh, it might be time to, to find somewhere else. So we, uh, ended up finding someone around the corner.
1: He's never far out of the news though. Even now, is he? Uh, do you still keep in touch with him?
0: Uh, not a great deal. Uh, yeah, and that, that goes for a lot of my other teammates. I just seem to to get on with my business and 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 do what I'm doing now, and uh, probably concentrate more on the you know the football clubs that I'm I'm currently with.
1: All right, quick straw poll with you, Stevie. Who was your toughest opponent uh, across your long career?
0: Well, as we mentioned, you know, I was you know, one seventy tall and seventy kilos, and you know, playing as a rover against a boat like Lee Matthews, who was a, a monster of a man, and so he he was probably the the toughest opponent, and he he showed what what a great player he was when he went and kicked so many goals at full forward. What about your most memorable game or most memorable
1: moment of your career? What do you look back most fondly?
0: Oh, you know the finals were fantastic. You know, as I said, the great games to be involved with. Not 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 so much the result, but probably three games that that stand out in in '87 uh, when we actually kicked 30 goals in a row. Uh, in th- three games in a row at the SCG. Uh, you yeah, know, that was certainly, certainly quite memorable. I think it was uh, West Coast, Essendon and Richmond. And that's when we were really up and going. So uh, those three games are, are quite memorable.
1: And when you kick back there at Phillip Island with a cold one in the recliner to watch a game of a weekend, who do you most enjoy watching? What current day player gives you the biggest thrill when you're watching them?
0: Most of the players now because, you know, we're, we're talking about there their high skill level but uh certainly you know blokes like buddy you know buddy dusty danger just those players that excite the crowd when they go near the football. You know, they, they're they're the the type of guys I, I like to, to watch because they are exciting and you never know what they're gonna do.
1: Be a nice full forward line, wouldn't it? Buddy, the whiz and Stevie Wright in the pocket.
0: That'd be nice as long as they drop a couple you know, put a few down for me. <laughs>
1: I don't reckon there'd be too many crumbs for you, to be honest, Stevie. But it'd be it'd be uh, it'd be an interesting watch.
0: It would be, yes. And uh, I'd imagine the two of them would take a bit of controlling.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you, uh, Steve. Right, a fantastic career, and I think today a great way to look back on it. Um, thanks so much for your time today, and and best of luck with life down there at Phillip Island. And I hope you get uh, back in charge of the the team soon.
0: Good on you. Thanks, Sam.
1: Steve right there. We'll be back next week to celebrate another sporting life, all thanks to our good friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals,
0: all thanks to McDonald's. Backers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.